The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. This is the Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. I am the writing on the wall, the podcast in the classroom. Without these things, I am nothing. So now I must shed innocent blood. Come with me. Have to say, that's probably the coolest quote that we've done so far Uh, yeah it's pretty badass um it's just like a great ominous line anyway regardless of the movie (laughs) yeah and this is a a movie that has been on my radar for a very long time and i finally got around to watching it i know you watched it a few weeks ago and i'm glad that we finally covering this this movie Uh, we are of course talking candy man the candy man can <laughs> yeah it was it was actually funny i was uh <laughs> talking about we were going to record this uh with with my wife and my son started singing candy man can because he thought i was talking about willy wonka well willy wonka does have that terrifying river scene with the tarantulas so there is no earthly way of knowing it very well could be the same movie um we're... yeah no that i i would say that scene in willy wonka is scarier than almost anything in any horror movie we've ever covered <laughs> that is a very good point because i 100 percent agree we're excited for this we it's been on our list of movies to review for i don't know how long nathaniel almost since i think we started I, I was aware that it was kind of a gap in my horror knowledge, and so I really wanted to pick it up. I knew that Clive Barker was involved. I like a lot of the stuff that he does. Not everything. I'm not the hugest Clive Barker fan, but I, I like a lot of his ideas, at least. And yeah, like, it's just such an iconic film. I mean, you know, I'd always seen pictures of, of like, the bee on the eye, you know, the, that cover and the, the hook man, you know, reflected in the eye. So I always wanted to know what it was, you know, even from a, uh, from my childhood. And so I finally, uh, just the other day, watched it. And for me, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with Clyde Barker, more so on the love side than the hate side. Um, I read his book, The Thief of Always, back in the sixth grade, and I was fascinated by it. It's such a fun book. Um, It's a great introductory horror novel for kids, I think. Although it's Mm -hmm. not super horror-esque, um more kind of fantasy adventure dark fantasy yeah yeah totally um but it really kind of opened my eyes to clive barker and i've read a few of his other things and i actually really like the first hellraiser movie i don't like any of hellraiser 2 through 47 but (laughs) he is kind of hit or miss with people i think you either really like him and kind of grew up with a lot of his stuff or he's kind of uh watered down stephen king i really hope he doesn't listen to this episode i so i'm gonna i'm gonna talk about clay barker in in more depth 
during the studying the strange segment. So we'll we'll kind of dive into a little bit of kind of what, what his whole shtick is and and everything with that. But in the meantime, let's uh, launch into to what we like about Candyman. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times in cities everywhere, Candyman. They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. Before we get into that, Nathaniel, I do kind of just want to do a quick recap for people. Candyman is kind of the classic mixing of two very popular urban legends one of them being the man with the hook you know you have two lovers in their car out in the middle of the woods and the radio turns on about this crazy killer who has a hook for a hand who's on the prowl and they eventually meet the man with the hook and of course he's a serial killer and and whatever um and yeah, usually an escape maniac from a mental asylum that kind of thing is usually the trope there yeah exactly i mean you you have the story all over the place as far as an urban legend more so however is this kind of idea and i'll get to it later on in the episode in our occult corner about summoning an entity through a mirror or saying his name three times the classic idea here is bloody mary uh we see it in the movie beetlejuice which is one of my all-time favorite shows it's a very common trope, and like I said, we'll get to it in my occult corner. So this movie is about this researcher, uh, Virginia Madsen, who plays Helen Lyle, and she is kind of researching this urban legend of a very derelict community. It's kind of the ghetto, very, very poor kind of aluminum foil tin houses type of a situation. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's straight up project housing and it's Cabrini Green, uh, which is uh, one of the most notorious uh, projects in the country. The legend states that there is this entity known as the Candyman. If you say his name three times in the mirror, he will come and attack you. And uh, we can get into kind of the mythos behind Candyman because it's never really defined 100%. But of course... It all becomes real, and she has a lot of scary encounters, and we're going to spoil it all, so you've been warned. For me, what I really, 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 really loved about this movie is that the true horror of this film, it's not incredibly scary, per se, but Bernard Rose is the director, and I think they did a really good job at bringing in a lot of those socioeconomic horrors that actually exist. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's it's so wild. And, and the first thing that kind of comes to mind is this poor neighborhood almost reveres the idea of this murderous deity, not because I think they are mentally unstable or sociopaths by any means, but it gives them something to hope for. And I think for me, as I was watching it, the idea of a benevolent god had just completely vanished from them. And so hoping in something even if it is a terrible thing gave them kind of the motivation to get up and move and and live their lives we're gonna just open up this episode with a lot of philosophy (laughs) so alongside kind of the poor looking towards something to give them hope for me again i i really felt the true horror of this film 
was the way it portrayed some of the stark differences between those who are poor, the have-nots, and those who are not, the haves. Um, and Helen is a great example of this. She's a well-renowned researcher. She seems to be very successful in her field. And as she's going through these projects, it's very, very, very apparent uh, kind of what side people are on as far as um, socioeconomics. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, that That's definitely true. And, and you know, having lived and, and uh, you know, as when I was a, an LDS missionary, you know, I spent a lot of time in in projects. Uh, you know, that was a lot of people that I uh, met and, and you who would let us in were, were people who uh, were uh, living in the projects. And so I've seen uh, kind of like what that lifestyle is and, and how difficult a life that could be for people and and so it's really interesting to see cabrini green as this very vivid example of that you know it's 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 a very radical example of uh, how uh, prevalent things like gang violence is every day kind of what what they're investigating you know at first is just this murder uh that had allegedly happened that you know had some things that were kind of reminiscent of this candy man urban legend uh, and so that's, you know, why Helen and um, Bernadette go and, ch- and check this out. And then, you know, as as they're investigating and, and all of that, you know, we, we see, you know, kind of more of this, like, you know, they, how, how you know, everyone is, is immediately kind of afraid to talk to them because they're, you know, professionally dressed, all that. So everyone starts assuming, oh, they're cops here. And so no one wants to, to, you know, be the person who talks to the cops because then they'll be in bad with the gangs. Well, and that scene for me was the most almost the most intense part of the entire movie because Helen and her research partner are slowly ascending this kind of apartment complex to find out what happened. And the tension that is just portrayed in some of these scenes is so visceral um, because it's, I think I connected with it because I had been in that situation. I also served an LDS mission in a third world country where I was the only Caucasian person probably in a few neighborhoods and it really threw me back to these neighborhoods that are so riddled with gang violence and destitution and everything that it while it might not actually be dangerous per se it makes you feel like you're in danger if that makes any sense um it's crazy and 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 that's the thing about those kinds of uh places is that you know, it's it's really hard to tell when things are normal versus when danger is present, because so often the gangs have such a, a foothold that you know even if you know you're not interacting with gang members, you might be interacting with their family members and things like that, and, and you know you never know when you're going to step on the toes of the wrong person or whatever, and suddenly you know things go poorly for you, and so that's the situation that that we have these two women in. As they're investigating this Candyman story, you know, and and, well, and specifically this murder story, so you know they go to this uh, apartment of a murdered woman, uh, where you know apparently some hook-handed man burst through her through the medicine cabinet of her of her bathroom and murdered her uh, in cold blood with this hook. And so they go and they, and they take lots of uh, pictures of a lot of the graffiti, which is just everywhere. It's on all the walls, and and so it's like really interesting and and you know very visually compelling to look at. 
and other stuff is just you know kind of your your standard people's tags and things like that. But you know there there, there keeps being these sort of like repeated mantras I would say be, uh, between the different areas that, that that kind of suggest Candyman. You know, it'll either say something about Candyman correctly, or it'll say like sweets to the sweet, <laughs> or it will say you know these different things that that points to Candyman as kind of this everyday part of the mythology of of the, the lives of the people in this community and so ultimately they or helen ends up going through this you know or she she pulls off the medicine cabinet because there's there's a, that's an area where it's connected to the apartment next to it but there's no wall between them it's just medicine cabinet to medicine cabinet and so she pushes the other medicine cabinet in crawls through and that's where we have you know presumably the the apartment of the person who came in and, and murdered her and that's one of my favorite moments in the film, just because Same. as she crawls through, she's crawling through what we see on the other side is is a, a giant graffiti mouth, or a, a screaming face, and she's coming out of the mouth. And oh, it's such a great visual, and, and you see it multiple times throughout the film, but it's always so good, and it. it's clearly, you know, the screaming Candyman that she's emerging from, and so now she... Uh, is in this world. Kind of what we have as far as plot-wise is, you know, she is keeps coming back to investigate more and more. She finds out that, you know, there have been multiple murders that have been uh, attributed to Candyman uh, over the last couple of years, including one in a bathroom. So she goes to this, like, public bathroom just to check it out. It's disgusting. Like, just, yep. yeah, words spelled out with feces, all sorts of awful things. She goes and she's just taking pictures, uh, and then this gang all comes in, and in, including uh, the gang leader who has a hook, uh, not for a hand, but he has a hook in his, in his hand. He says, I heard you're looking for Candyman. Well, you found him, and, and they beat her up. But because she's white, that is enough to actually get the attention of the police. They round up uh, a lot of the gang members. Uh, she's able to identify the gang leader. And, and they're thrilled because, you know, basically, up until this point, they don't have anyone who would be willing to testify against this man, because everyone's terrified of this gang in this community. But, you know, since she's an outsider, she is able to kind of get him put away, and they, and you know, they know that he is responsible for these murders, but they couldn't do anything about it until this point. Well, and, and I, th I think it's important to note as well that when this all happens, it really kind of makes you think that maybe the gang is Candyman. Uh, that it was an urban legend, but it was kind of personified by these gang members, and they've used it as kind of a, a scapegoat to do what they've they want to do. And 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 I mean, to be fair, that is what they are doing. True, true. Um, and that I think is where the movie shifts, though, and we actually realize that Candyman is a real supernatural entity that has, I think, kind of had some sort of control over this neighborhood. And even though they may have been invoking his name on the acts that they've been doing, I think for me, as I was watching it, it kind of made the impression that Candyman was controlling this this project neighborhood. Yeah, um, or or basically how I how, kind of how I understand it is that he sort of exists as a being that either like feeds on or is sort of powered by the fear of the community. Like, Absolutely. If people aren't afraid of him, then he has no power. And so he's really pissed off that basically now everyone says, oh, Candyman was just that kid and he's in jail now. 
So now people are no longer afraid of Candyman in this community. And so he takes it into his own hands to correct this. And I, Nathaniel, I kind of want to circle back to the graffiti that we saw. Because for me, that was the the pinnacle of the movie, really. When Helen was crawling through that screaming mouth and kind of the subtleties in the graffiti whispering almost the lore of Candyman. And, and even up to the scene where she's in the bathroom with the feces and the blood and everything. I think what this movie does best is its portrayal of art and horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I ha- I don't know if I've seen another movie that has such physical representation of art that makes me feel the way I did when I was watching this movie. Does that make that make sense? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's it does a, a really great job of kind of showing the sort of connection between art and folklore, and and you know, kind of like how art really is part of a culture and how it sort of shows fears and things that the cult that a culture cares about and so in this case you know the graffiti art is of course you know sort of the the street art of the people in the projects and so seeing it then showing their greatest fears you know this candy man that is this kind of unstoppable horror force that could you know burst into their house in the middle of the night and murder them with a hook like to me that did such a, a visceral job of showing it because it was visually stunning and terrifying and wonderful to look at because it was just it was just impressive art. And then seeing people interact with it, you know, crawl through that wall uh, and, you know, out the mouth of a candy man, things like that is, is such a powerful image that that both, you know, tells us a lot about. Uh, his origins and his lore, you know, we, we see little scenes from, you know, his life and, and the way he died and kind of his origin story uh, interspersed with all of these other kind of day-to-day graffiti art that is, it, I don't know, it, it was really brilliantly done. It did it in such a good way because it, there was no kind of call out to any of the pieces of art. It was such a subtle undertone that was also kind of driving a lot of the plot points and a lot of the lore of Candyman that kind of helps you rewatch this film. The more you watch it, kind of the more you pick up with the graffiti and and all of that. And so it, it really kind of felt like an enigma at the same time, which is exactly what Candyman is in this entire movie, is you don't really know who he is or what he is until the very, very end. And even then, it's still very unclear. And I I really think that visual art, being so subtle yet dynamic, pushed a lot of those feelings into a viewer of, of feeling confused and scared and not sure what is going on. You're surrounded by all of these terrible things, and yet you don't fully understand what they mean. Part of what I love about that is that it, it really does directly relate to who Candyman is and, and his origin story. So I, I guess now might be a good time to kind of fill in some of those details before we jump into what he then starts doing to Helen. Sure. Kind of what we know about him is that he was the son of a slave. Uh, he was a painter and he starts going around. And, and this is, you know, so since he's a son of a slave, you know, this is later 1800s. Because he's a skilled painter, you know, kind of everyone is hiring him. He kind of becomes the the big guy to go to in high society, you know, if if you want a portrait done. So he is hired to paint a portrait of this woman of, you know, some local, 
I don't know, so, so, some big muckamuck uh, uh, around town. Uh, you know, he, he's painting uh, the daughter, the, he and the daughter, uh, who is white, fall in love. Uh, so then there's a you know, lynch mob that comes after him. They cut off his hand, they replace it with a hook, and they decide, no, that's not good enough. And so they drag him out uh, to some beehives and have him be stung to death. So that's, like, how he came to be. And so, you know, from there he becomes this, like, kind of vengeant ghost. And and then it, you know, then it becomes less about specifically vengeance on the people who hurt him and more just that he is angry and he is kind of almost this, I would, I would say, like, Dracula-like figure. He feeds on maybe not blood, but on, on fear of, of this town. Well, and like we've mentioned, the plot really kind of starts to to wrap up when this gang is arrested and the, the neighborhood that they are in kind of start to realize, oh, well, maybe Candyman was just this gang. And I feel like the, the unified belief in him starts to wane. <laughs> Therefore, he starts to come after Helen because at the beginning of the movie, she did try the say his name three times in the mirror aspect. Five times. Five times. Sorry, I'm thinking Bloody Mary. <laughs> um, and really, when when that starts, I, I did feel like there was kind of a lull in the begin or towards the middle of the movie, but where we actually start to see Candyman and the interaction between Helen and Candyman. That's where things really kick off. And Tony Todd portrays the Candyman, and he does a phenomenal job, Nathaniel. And, and Helen as well. Helen is such a sympathetic protagonist and her acting is so authentic. And as a researcher myself, like I really identified with a lot of her decisions and and kind of her gut moves that she does and, and doing what she does for the sake of science. Like the dynamic between Candyman and Helen was phenomenal in this movie i thought agreed agreed yeah i I feel like the yeah that's something we should definitely highlight is just that the acting really across the board was great uh but tony todd as the candy man is intimidating like he has just the best like richest voice that is so creepy when he's going you know helen (laughs) be my victim helen and then uh, Virginia Madsen also did, yeah, phenomenal as, as Helen. You know, she she really did a, a wonderful job of you know both being like quite competent, you know, especially under the circumstances, but also really being in over her head and and really just being so overwhelmed. And she did just a good job of kind of showing the complexity of of what of that character. So yeah, both of them real real good. But yeah, so what happens is he attacks her in a parking garage and she just kind of is almost like hypnotized by his presence. And actually, uh, a fun fact that I end up finding out through you know doing some research about the movie after I finished is that like for this scene and, and a few other scenes in the film where um, she's interacting with Candyman and is kind of like mesmerized by him. Uh, they actually literally hired a hypnotist to make that uh, as p- realistic as possible. So they would hypnotize her before the scene, so like her, you know, so she would be responding in a genuine like trance-like state. So I, I feel like that that did a lot to to really kind of drive those moments home. But yeah. So he just kind of like approaches her, and then suddenly it goes. To the the screen is filled with bees, and then she wakes up, 
in the apartment of uh, this woman from the projects who uh, has a baby uh, who was, you know, kind of giving her some information and all of that. And there's just blood everywhere. The dog of this woman has been decapitated. And, you know, the baby is missing. And, and this woman is freaking out. And she's like, you know, you killed my dog. You took my baby. Where's my baby? And so she, you know, attacks her. Helen has to fight back. And then the cops show up and haul Helen away and are basically like, hey, like, you know, we're looking for the body, but you're under arrest for murder. And that scene, I think, was probably the scariest scene for me. That poor young mother, the acting there, ugh, it took my breath away because it, you just felt so sad for her. And the, it was raw and it was very gritty. And I just wish they would have kept that throughout the start and the finish of the show. So good. Another little tidbit that I think is super fascinating, which really adds an extra dimension and and flavor to the movie, was the Candyman is constantly surrounded by this hive of bees. And we found out, again through research, that Tony Todd actually had these bees in his mouth, had them all over him. They they covered the, his body. I would never do that. I'm not that method as an actor, I guess. <laughs> um, but also something that you had in our show notes was they actually paid him for any time he got stung. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So he worked out a deal, you know, either with the producers or the director or something, where uh, every time he got stung, he would get a thousand dollars, and he got stung twenty three times. So he he said that it definitely made suffering for his art worth it. <laughs> I maybe would be a method actor if I got that much money for being stung by a bee. I don't know. I've been stung by a bee twice and I have not appreciated it or loved it in any way, shape or form. It sucks. Yeah, he got stung by a lot of bees. Yeah, and they, and they had yeah thousands and thousands <laughs> of bees on set. So yeah, like off screen, you know, when they would be working with the bees, they would often have everyone else in like bee suits, like holding the cameras and the mics and stuff. And then, you know, he would just be getting stung, doing his best. I don't know if I was just feeling the power of alcohol whilst watching the show, but I really thought the symbolism behind the bees was actually pretty powerful. Like we've mentioned, a lot of the horror behind the movie is kind of this dynamic and drastic difference between those who have money and those who do not, those who are rich and those who are poor. And I got thinking a little bit about the bees and how really when you have a beehive, you have this swarm of animals that are all technically bees. And yet when you get down to the nitty gritty, each one of them is kind of segregated into its own task necessarily uh you have a worker bee a drone bee the queen bee and and i was really moved by that because i think the movie does a good job of that in that we're all humans even the candy man at one time was a human and yet society kind of forces us into these holes that really define our lives and it it's very tragic when you think about it so are you saying that he's the queen bee um obviously he's the queen bee <laughs> all right or the king bee. Queen bee. Yeah, no. Uh, you have to be the queen bee, because king bees aren't really a thing. They are not. They are not. <laughs> so, I guess maybe the, to kind of hit some of the, the key points of the, the rest of the plot before we kind of jump into a little bit more of what we liked, what we didn't like as much. Basically, and, and this is going to just 
largely simplify everything, but Helen ends up getting bailed out by her husband, who has obviously been cheating with one of his college students, who's a professor the whole time. Yeah, but he bails her out. She's at home, just, you know, kind of waiting for more evidence or whatever to come in to before, you know, she gets charged with something or whatever. Her friend Bernadette, the uh, person that she's been working on the thesis with, comes just as she's getting attacked by Candyman again. So Candyman murders Bernadette, makes it look like it was definitely Helen. Helen gets hauled away, thrown into this mental hospital, gets drugged up real good, loses like an entire month, you know, and, and she's, you know, just convinced that, you know, Candyman is under her bed, things like that. And, and you know, of course, they have film security footage of her screaming while there's obviously nothing under the bed, that kind of stuff. But she finds out, you know, when she kind of comes back to it, that has been happening. Um, the baby is still missing. And, and sort of the, the condition that Candyman has, has given her is that, you know, either she can choose to be his victim or he will shed the innocent blood of the baby. You know, he has the baby, and but, you know, if she sacrifices herself to him, then he will let her free. He kills her doctor, she manages to escape, and ultimately ends up confronting him at this, like, church in, in, the, in Cabrini Green, where, you know, where he, he's kind of done a lot of his hideout stuff. He does this really gross, like, bee kiss... <laughs> it's bizarre <laughs> yeah and and you know she kind of blacks out again but then you know she kind of comes to and and there's this apparently like a, a regular thing in the community where they have like a big bonfire night and just get burn all their trash or something and so she realizes oh the baby has to be like in the middle of this bonfire pile so she goes uh climbs in there she you know gets the baby free Candyman's trying to, you know, stop her from leaving. The town all comes out to burn the bonfire, but this time it's like they 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 know that Candyman is in there, and so this is them kind of standing up to him, trying to kill Candyman and get him out of their lives once and for all. So they light it on fire. Helen manages to crawl out with the baby, get the baby to safety, and then dies from the burns. Then, you know, kind of cut to her funeral. Her skeezy husband and his girlfriend are there crying. And then suddenly this entire Cabrini Green community comes and they drop uh, the hook of Candyman on her coffin and, you know, all kind of pay their respects. And then, you know, cut forward to husband who is, you know, now living with his, his you know, 20-year-old girlfriend. She's making dinner and he's just kind of sitting in the bathroom just contemplating and, you know, realizing that, like, hey, maybe I screwed up. Maybe I shouldn't have abandoned my wife when she needed me and so he's like oh helen 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 after the fifth one you know there's a flash she appears and and she almost has like a hive head where she was burned and then you know boom cut to credits and i can we move into things we did not like about the movie now yes because that ending i just thought was bad why can she just not have died (laughs) well Okay, so, and and this is actually something that that I'll, that I think there's kind of an explanation there, but it it relates to something that I also don't love. So we kind of have it made clear that uh, she is sort of like a reincarnation of the lover of Candyman when you know that led to him getting murdered, right? And so that's why he's you know been after her the whole time. But 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 it just all kind of felt contrived, and I think. 
that scene at the end really kind of made it even more contrived. I don't know, something of that plot substantiality, I don't know if that's a real word, I don't care at this point, needed to have some sort of moment where we figured it out, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, that was kind of made clear earlier, but it was just one of those things where, I I don't know, the reincarnated lover thing is such a cliche trope. It, it's been a cliche uh. trope way before this movie was ever made. I don't know, I just, I, I hate those kinds of ideas, and so I didn't love that. And so then her kind of having the same sort of ghostly powers or whatever as Candyman really just didn't work for me. Like, it was kind of a fun ending, but like story-wise didn't really work for me. I thought it was just kind of cheap, honestly, that we really loved Helen and she's a great dynamic female protagonist. And then at the end, it just kind of slams it in the face. I don't know. It felt like a cheap horror movie trick where they... You know, have to try and scare you the minute before you leave the theater. And I I just didn't think it was needed at all. And it, it cheapened the story a little bit to me. Agreed. Yeah, I, I just felt like she wasn't the kind of character that would be murdering her crappy husband as yeah. a ghost. Yeah. Like, she was mad at him for good reason. Yeah, I just don't see her being reduced to being the same as Candyman when she was standing against him the whole time. So I didn't love that. I felt like it was untrue to the character just for, yeah, a cheap kind of thrill at the very end. So kind of that aside, were there other things about the the film that you didn't like as much? There were some very intense, scary parts. Um, The scene where Helen was crawling through Screaming Candyman's... Graffiti mouth? Graffiti! And then the young mother and her baby was missing... And then, of course, the bees and the hypnotism and all of that. But other than that, and if you kind of take a step back and look at it as a horror movie, it's not very scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it's it's visceral, it's intense, it's gritty, but nothing really got to me other than those scenes that I mentioned. Yeah, yeah, you definitely, you know, finish the movie and you're like, huh, that was a fun story, and not go like, huh, I'm looking over my shoulder now at every little sound. And I wonder if it's it's just hasn't aged very well, which they are making it, or they're remaking it with Jordan Peele as the director, I believe. No, correct? no. he is the uh, producer, uh, ah. and the director of the new one is Nia DaCosta. So, and I believe this is like her second or third film. So yeah, that's that's coming out later this year. And can I say, I'm so excited for it because... Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I feel really connected to this neighborhood. Cabrini Green. It was the projects. I just moved in around the corner. The old candy factory. I'm an artist. You look up a candy man. He's the monster. It's part of this neighborhood. Why are you drawn to this? I'm hoping to spread the story all about Candyman. The mirror invites you to summon him. You should say his name. I dare you. Candyman. 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 Don't. Don't say that. Candyman. So it's supposed to actually be kind of more of a spiritual sequel. So it's, you know, basically the 
the neighborhood has become very gentrified, and then it's, you know, following this young black artist who is fascinated by a lot of the, the lore, specifically Candyman, and so he does a lot of art of Candyman, and then, you know, it has, like, a mirror inviting people to say his name and stuff like that, and then, you know, it starts getting real crazy from that trailer, and it sounds really cool. Like, just that concept with Candyman is brilliant to me, and I really, really can't wait. Yeah, and Jordan Peele has endorsed a lot of phenomenal movies. Um, we have Get Out, Us, all of these themes that have a very strong African-American kind of push in them. And I'm really thrilled to see what he does with this. And I know he's yes. just producing, of course, but he, he will definitely leave his stamp of approval for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, and, and he wrote the, the screen, or he, he co-wrote the screenplay for it, to clarify. And so again, I think Candyman, this one we're talking about today, just hasn't aged very well as far as horror movies go. It's a classic and it's an iconic horror movie by by no... Um, I can't talk anymore. It's an iconic movie. And yeah. it always will be. But just because it's iconic and classic doesn't mean it still has the horror gravita that a few other... Um, even older movies like Rosemary's Baby to me is terrifying and the original Carrie is fan phenomenal Alien uh, this I just don't think has it's the stamina that the others did yeah well I I will say that like I feel like Candyman really really holds up extremely well in a lot of ways uh, the visuals the pacing agreed uh, the acting all of that really really great uh, yeah, I would say just, yeah, where it lacks is mostly just in that it isn't uh, the same kind of roller coaster of, of terror that a lot of horror movies are. It's more of a, in, in many ways, you know, kind of a, a dark urban fantasy sort, sort of story uh, where, you know, a lot of the horror is coming more from the real life elements of racism and poverty and gang crime and all of that. Which doesn't really scare us in the same sort of visceral way. And so, you know, then having the supernatural elements on top of it, like, those were great and scary, but that was only half of the movie. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I agree. Like, I don't think it is quite at the same level as some of those other films. Um, but I, I think it's a really important movie because it was kind of one of the earlier adopters of, of like, really looking at horror through a good, like, socio-political lens uh, like looking at race and oh, uh, and you know how agreed. the police uh deal with black communities and things like that can, can i uh before we um move on to like ratings and stuff can i also just share one other thing that i didn't love about candy man please uh his lore is kind of like a little bit too complicated for me because complicated you know, and vague at the same time yeah, like, I feel like it, it, you know, does lay out a lot of the facts, sometimes very plainly. You know, there's like a conversation that Helen has with some, you know, pompous a-hole that, you know, during dinner or something once. Who's like, oh, you don't know about Candyman? And here's all these, you know, here's the, here's the scoop on him. I'm so smart. But it's just, you know, like, okay, so he was the son of a slave. He was an artist. He, you know fell in love with a white woman, was murdered. For some reason, they put a hook on his hand. I didn't understand why they put a hook on his hand. 
Maybe that didn't make sense to me. They wanted to take away his talent for art. I don't know. And and like I would get it if like that was it, and then he ended up I don't know dying from complications from that. But then they immediately hauled him out to have the bees. The bees. And like I love the bees. Like that's a great <laughs> great thing. I just felt like maybe the hook hand thing just didn't ever quite gel for me. And then also I'm just not one hundred percent certain why he's called Candyman. Like, is it because bees stung him, and so bees make honey, and honey is sweet? So, candy man? If it is that, that is a very long way to get to a nickname. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, so I wasn't really positive why he was called Candyman, and then I really didn't understand how there was necessarily this mirror connection to him. Like, why is it that repeating Candyman in front of a mirror summons him? Why is he... Of like a vengeance ghost, basically, but he isn't getting vengeance on anyone involved in killing him. We will talk about the mirror stuff in my occult corner. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and so like, like I know, I know that like that was already a thing. I just didn't understand why it necessarily applied to this character specifically. Well, and I, I think, like I mentioned at the beginning of the the episode, it, it took two urban legends and kind of smushed them together. And just was okay with it. They, they, I don't know if they really thought through a lot of these finer points because the urban legends are just so iconic. I, I think maybe they thought people wouldn't really ask some of these questions. Yeah, and that, and that's fair. You know, it's it's one of those things where like I just like I, I like a lot of those things and I like how it played out visually and stuff, but it just the logical connections didn't quite gel for me. Uh, but yeah, should we move on to ratings? Yeah, go for it. I gave it, um, sorry, I said go for it, and then I just decided to talk. <laughs> All right, how many crowns do you give it there, man? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I gave it a six. It's a solid movie, and I agree with everything that you just said about how it was such a, a powerful movie as far as racism goes and portraying what African Americans go through. It just was lacking a lot of points though that i wanted it i wanted it to be grittier and, and more raw as far as crowns go i gave it a seven i like part of me really wants to give it an eight just just for the visuals alone honestly like if if, if i had a separate cinematography score i would give it like a solid nine or ten like just visually utterly stunning but there was just a few things that didn't quite mash it so that's why i ended up getting a seven from me instead of a higher score screams wise i gave it a six there's some great moments but not super super scary yeah i gave it a four because it had those two phenomenal scenes but outside of that i i don't know if i'd be able to tell you of any other super super scary parts nothing comes to mind that's fair do you want to go into studying the strange and talk to us about where this story comes from? Yes, absolutely. Okay, so for our studying strange segment today, I'm going to talk a little bit about Clive Barker, as I mentioned previously, and also going to talk about specifically the short story that is the origin of Candyman, uh, which is called The Forbidden, which was uh, from Clive Barker's Books of Blood series of short stories. I believe it was from volume five. Clive Barker is a pretty significant figure in the horror world, especially you know, in terms of horror film and horror literature. 
he of course uh, directed and wrote and kind of created the the Hellraiser uh, series. He I believe directed the first one, and then after that, it was other people who kind of took the helm and took it to space and all sorts of weird places. Yeah, let's not get into that. Yeah, and then you know he of course wrote the story for Candyman. Uh, he has you know a bunch of other stuff that has been adapted in, into films, you know, such as uh, Rawhead Rex. Gods and Monsters, Lord of Illusions, The Hellbound Heart. Yeah, so I mean, he's he's done uh, Nightbreed. Uh, you know, he's he's really been involved in, in a lot of different movies. At, but you know, kind of at, at his core, he is a writer. You know, kind of starting out. You know, as I mentioned, he sort of came into prominence in the eighties uh, with uh, his series of short story collections, which were called the Books of Blood. And there's uh, and, and a lot of those stories were kind of, you know, what sort of set the stage for a lot of his career that would follow. As I mentioned, you know, the Forbidden, this Candyman story, is uh, one of those many stories. There's there's tons and tons of them. There's, I think, even, like, some of the origins of, like, the Cenobites. All of that is, is kind of spread throughout that series. After that, he wrote a novel called The Damnation Game. Uh, I've read it. It's pretty decent basically it's it's a you know about a faustian bargain i love me a good faustian bargain nathaniel yeah so i i think you should pick up the damnation game and then after that you know he started to kind of get more into some of the urban fantasy sort of stuff you know with weave roll the great and secret show in magica sacrament aberat you know the, the thief of always you know, he's even kind of gotten to some some younger uh, fiction one thing that that kind of makes him stand out in the horror community is that he is gay and often writes about you know the gay community or um, about a lot of like fetish culture and things like that. You know, hence the Cenobites looking like they're you know BDSM doms and things like that. So you know he he definitely really takes a lot of uh, sexual components both from his his personal life and and just you know the the communities of, of you know different fetish and kink cultures and really kind of weaves them into the horror. Uh, that he does. And so that's, that's something that, you know, I mean, other writers do it, but that, you know, he was kind of one of the first like big figures to, to start making those kinds of ideas much more mainstream. And, and yeah, so that's kind of where we see him sort of as, as a significant figure. You know, he was kind of a, a trailblazer for a lot of uh, gay horror writers uh, and also just, yeah, other horror writers who wanted to kind of involve sexuality in more abstract or fetishized ways. Uh, into horror fiction. So specifically, talking about The Forbidden, we have, you know, this story where it, it it really is very, very similar to the film. You know, it's about a university student named Helen. Um, she's doing a thesis on graffiti. It's it's set in, uh, I believe, Liverpool instead of, you know, uh, Chicago because uh, my marker is British. From there, you know, it, it has a lot of the same kind of ideas you know, she's investigating some recent murders and looking at the graffiti and then ends up encountering the Candyman and, you know, that he has this baby, all that kind of stuff. It, basically, the, the, the sort of key differences are, you know, other than the setting uh, being different, is that it doesn't really bring up certain elements of his backstory. You know, it, it never mentions that Candyman was a son of a slave or a lot of the, the stuff there. It doesn't have that whole... Helen is the reincarnated lover or any of that present. It's it's a little bit, you know, tighter and, and just kind of more focused. But like as a whole, it's the the film is a very close adaptation, like to a to a degree that actually really surprised me. Really just, you know, it, it 
the the film just kind of fleshes out the world more and fleshes out Candyman and, and his origin more. It's it's basically the the same kind of stuff, you know, the 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 same sort of legends are being told. The way that she kind of encounters him is essentially the same. And yeah, so that's that's the Forbidden and uh, Clive Barker in a nutshell. All right. Well, for my portion of the episode, we're gonna the go the occult corner. I want to talk a little bit about the classic mirror games that we see a lot of times in urban folklore, primarily Bloody Mary. Um, and when I was doing research on the topic, I didn't really find a whole lot of information actually about where this type of stuff began, other than it is kind of the a remnant of what's called catroptomancy, which is a fancy word for divination through the use of a mirror. And mirrors and reflective surfaces have been used in divination and seance for a very long time. You read about it even with the Greeks using these mediums to, to commune with deities and with entities and spirits. And nowadays, when you when you get into scrying, scrying is just kind of a fancy word for using a device to ask questions or look into the future, stuff like that. Two that I find really, really fascinating are something called angel mirrors, which is a mirror that you will use and you stare at it and try not to blink and essentially kind of hypnotize yourself into a trance to the point where you'll be able to see past this physical veil and see your guardian angel or angels and and be able to ask them questions and they'll respond the opposite though is true where they have demon mirrors actually and i may or may not have one saved in my amazon cart huh. um <laughs> where instead of kind of a silver metallic reflective surface they have this it's almost obsidian like and it's very very smooth you can see a reflection in it but it's in an obsidian mirror so everything is very dark and black and when you use that to scry and talk to demons you're supposed to see them behind you as kind of these shadowy figures so that's kind of the root of where a lot of these stories come from is people have been looking in mirrors for as long as they can remember and asking questions trying to get spiritual feedback from ancestors or god or gods and so it's very common the story that we hear so often is that of Bloody Mary. And it's really fun to talk to people about what they think Bloody Mary is or how they've heard the Bloody Mary story. For me, you had to go into the bathroom alone, turn all the lights off, mm -hmm. and wait till your eyes adapted. Look in the mirror and say Bloody Mary three times, and she was supposed to appear. How about you, Nathaniel? Have you heard the same? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She would appear... Um, I, I believe it was supposed to be like in place of your own reflection or that your own. I, I've also heard it that your own reflection would then like turn bloody or something like that. Yeah. And, and so, again, there's just so many different variations on this story. Kind of the, the core myth that I was able to piece together was Bloody Mary will allegedly appear after chanting her name in a dark room with candles. She'll appear as a corpse, a witch, a ghost. She can be friendly and answer questions. She can be evil, covered in blood. And the legend also states that people have heard her screaming or cursing at them and even stealing their soul and drinking their blood. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely heard it as, <laughs> oh, she will kill you. Right, right. So it's very variable. Very variable. Let's say that ten times fast. It's interesting because I think folklore does this all the time and... 
I think it's one of the most beautiful things about folklore is one person hears a story, they pass that story along and something changes. And then that second person takes it and shares it. And again, some other facet of it changes. And it's eventually, a worldwide game of telephone. Exactly. But because of that worldwide game of telephone, this urban myth starts to kind of get legs and become this entity in itself almost which i just find so fascinating it's kind of the slender man story of our time mm-hmm. i do want to go a little bit more into two components of the bloody mary story there was actually a historical person who was called bloody mary <laughs> uh, it was queen regent mary the first of england she's a legendary monarch if you've taken any high school history class you know about her she was born February 18, 1516 in Greenwich. And something interesting about her is she's one of the few people in documented medical history that has suffered from what's called pseudosciasis. I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation of that. But it's a very rare disorder where a female body will start to exhibit signs of pregnancy, except they're not pregnant, so the uterine lining gets very robust, Hormone levels change, breast enlargement, all of these very telltale signs of pregnancy. And then all of a sudden, they just have menstrual bleeding like mad because they're really not pregnant. So all of a sudden, the uterine lining has to slough off dramatically. So there's a lot of blood. And so Bloody Mary, part of her name comes from this because she suffered from this so much that she was essentially bleeding a lot. Uh, the kind of more true reason why we call Queen Mary Bloody Mary, though, is during her reign, there was a huge shift in religion in England, uh, essentially a, a social war between the Catholics and the Protestants that turned into a physical war. She, When she came to power, she issued a decree that Catholicism was the true religion of England and the Marian persecutions started, which ultimately ended up killing about 300 people because they were Protestants. That That's it. And so that kind of officially gave her the title of Bloody Mary. However, it is very unclear, and I looked at probably 15 plus websites earlier today to try and figure out how Bloody Mary got associated with this urban legend. And there's really no answer, which is fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah, and like I, another person I've seen associated with the Bloody Mary legend was actually the Bell Witch. Yeah, uh, who, who's kind of the you know, archetype, I guess, for the Blair Witch uh, in those films. And so, yeah, like I've seen, yeah, you know, that oh yeah, the Bloody Mary that appears is the the Bell Witch. And when I was researching, I saw the Bell Witch. I saw Baba Yaga. I saw the Witch of Endor from the Bible, Morgana for our, from our Arthurian legend, Circe from Grecian legend. Like I think it really just depends on where you grew up and where we have English roots here in America. I wonder if that's why. It's just so fascinating. Last thing I want to talk about actually kind of disproves all of this in a sense. Um, and I don't want to say disproves because we never know. And as a true scientist... I can't ever disprove something 100%. <laughs> but shows what I, evidence against it. There we go. Thank you. From one 
English major to a science major. You corrected. <laughs> what I wanted to talk about is what's called Troxler's fading. It's a fancy neurological situation where everyone has probably experienced it at one point in their life. The, the term Troxler's fading comes from a Swiss physician named Ignaz Paul Vital Troxler. came in 1804. Essentially, it's a form of neural adaptation. Um, and neural adaptation is just a very fancy word for when we are looking at something or we have something on our body that our brain just does not need to worry about. And so almost habituates to the fact that it's not there. Have you ever worn maybe a tighter belt and you know it's uncomfortable for a minute? And then after, you know, 15, 20 minutes, you don't even realize it's there. Yeah. Something like that. Or, or I, I would say that this, you know, is, is kind of akin to the, uh, like, road hypnosis when, you know, you're driving and you just kind of, like, zone out completely. 100%. The exact same thing. And you bring up the fact that I wanted to move into is, is a type of self-hypnosis. Your brain starts to kind of disintegrate what's on your periphery. And in a lot of these urban legends, you have to stare at the mirror for a long time while chanting this mantra, you know, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, Bloody Mary, or Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. And so it starts to kind of condition your brain to go into this hypnosis and fuzz out things that you're not staring at specifically. However, the brain is a very powerful organ and does not like to have blank space in its processing. So what it will do is, as you start to kind of fade away your periphery, it doesn't like that, so it tries to fill in that periphery with something coded in its neurons. And a lot of times that is facial features, because we're conditioned to look for and recognize facial features. It could also be something very scary or traumatic, because a lot of our primitive brain is, is found in some of those raw emotions, those fear emotions, those traumatic emotions. And so people who stare at the mirror in these urban legends oftentimes will see ghoulish and scary faces because their brain is trying to fill in the static. And if you want a very, very simplistic kind of uh, example of the Troxlers fading, Google the Lilac Chaser. This is, I'm sure everyone has seen this before at some point in their life. You'll look at the black cross and it has a green dot that is going around the cross and as you stare at that black cross that green dot starts to turn purple um, and then all of the green dots eventually disappear and you only see this rotating purple dot around a black cross and that's exactly what this phenomenon is um, it's pretty fascinating it's kind of the the perfect hybrid of the occult and neuroscience which are my two favorite things heck yeah <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for filling us in on uh, some mirror games and uh, some and, and expanding our minds. Yeah, science rules. Bill, 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 Bill. please don't sue us, Bill and I. <laughs> that would be terrifying. Oh, uh, speaking of staying spooky, see how seamless that was? It was very seamless. You're staying spooky by deferring lawsuits against us by Bill Nye the Science Guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was no clunkiness in that transition. So, Max, how have you been staying spooky? 
Other than turning 30 this month and slowly withering away into nothing. You're also 30, so happy birthday to us. Yep, yep. It is, uh, it has just been our birthdays. We got each other rad horror gifts. So that's a great way to say spooky is to get your best friend the spookiest of all gifts. In this case, I got Max the uh, Roman ritual, the <gasps> exorcist so ritual. And I got Nathaniel a beautiful and delicate print of some Lovecraftian literature that is superimposed with the great god Cthulhu. And the great god Howard Lovecraft? I, mean, I guess he's there too, but who needs a human when you can have a giant octopus monster? Yeah, <sighs> the giant octopus monster wants to destroy everything. And isn't racist. For my birthday, though, I did watch a very compelling, albeit not very horror-esque movie called The Other Lamb. You can find it on Amazon. It was a $3 rental. It's about this polygamous cult that experiences a lot of trauma. And this girl who belongs to the cult starts to kind of see through the cult leader and kind of what they go through and why people fall into the pitfalls that are cults and how devastatingly difficult it is sometimes to get out and the cost and price of getting out is oftentimes irreversible so it's really good it was more of a period piece drama not so much horror uh, but there were definitely elements that would fit right in with all of the best horror cult movies that i know Okay, how I am staying spooky is lately, while I have been, you know, doing grading and stuff like that, I've been trying to just, you know, watch the occasional horror movie or whatever, uh, because my students keep avoiding working with me uh, during school hours like they're supposed to. So, uh, accordingly, I've been watching a a few different horror movies, and uh, the most recent one would be uh, 2018 Halloween, so the reboot sequel to the original film and i have to say i actually really enjoyed it which surprised me because i'm not really big on halloween the film series i hated this remake of halloween hated it oh well i actually liked it a lot like like it wasn't it wasn't perfect but like i thought it was pretty solid i liked it better than the original film and and i know that is going to get me you know (laughs) burned at the stake by many hardcore (laughs) horror fans but Honestly, I just don't love the original horror or the original Halloween. It just didn't really do it for me. I'm not super big on a lot of these kind of unstoppable slasher mm, guys. Agreed. Agreed. You know, silent. You know, like like Jason, Michael. Just don't really do it for me. I don't know. This film just kind of worked for me in a, in a way that I didn't expect it to. I had a lot of fun with it. So I actually now really looking forward to Halloween Kills this year. And I am not, but I will watch it. Okie dokie. Thanks for everyone who was listening to this episode. I hope we're all trying to stay as sane as possible. Hopefully this quarantine starts to to die off. Not in the negative way that that could be taken. Oh boy. Okay. Um, Wrap it up. Hurry real quick. All right, everyone. Stay spooky. Stay spooky. Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at Scream Kings Podcast at gmail.com. 
Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash Stay spooky.